Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Hello, and welcome to our second episode on how mass works. So, In our last episode, we covered some common questions about the Mass, and today we're going to step through the Mass itself from beginning to end. We're going to talk through each thing that happens at Mass and why it happens. I am so excited for this topic because as I was preparing it, like this has actually been one of my favorite episodes to prepare because it reminded me of just how incredible and beautiful the mass is, how everything that we say and do at mass is meaningful. And it's all part of this one great, perfect prayer that God has given us. Now, just a quick side note, today we're going to be stepping through a Sunday Mass. Weekday Masses have the same structure as a Sunday Mass, but they're generally a bit shorter and they might be missing some of the elements that we talk about today. So don't freak out if you go to a, like a weekday Mass and you're like, hang on, wait, why didn't they do the Gloria? Okay, the weekday Mass is just shorter. Today we're going to look at a Sunday Mass. So let's do it. Let's go through the whole Mass. Okay. So the very first thing that happens at the start of the Mass is that the priest enters and we all stand up. Now, remember that we said in our last episode that standing equals praying. So from the very first moment of the mass, we're praying. So the priest enters, we all stand, and he leads us in the sign of the cross. The sign of the cross is a way of beginning prayer, and it's also a way of placing ourselves in the presence of God and saying, okay, everything that I do and say for the next hour-ish, I do in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we're kind of dedicating the next hour to him. The priest then says, the Lord be with you, and we respond, and with your spirit. So this calls to mind those words from Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. So the priest asks that the Lord be here with us as we're gathered together, and we ask that the Lord might act through the priest during the Mass. So already within like the first 10 seconds of Mass, we have placed ourselves in the very real presence of God, and we have begun to pray. So we are on holy ground from the very first moment of the Mass. It's very easy to kind of throw those first moments away, but they're actually incredibly important. So the next thing that happens is something called the confiteor, which is a Latin term that means I confess. So this is a prayer where we confess our sinfulness to God and to each other, and we ask our brothers and sisters to pray for us. Now, we might hear that and sort of think, oh, my gosh, like that's a bit intense. Like we've literally been at mass for five seconds and we're already talking about what sinners we are. Isn't this just like Catholic guilt? Like, why do we start by talking about sin? Okay, let's think about it. Imagine that you went to the gym and you did a big old workout and then you came home and you're in your shorts and your T-shirt and you're all sweaty and stinky and your face is all red and gross and you walk through the front door and literal King Charles is sitting in your living room. (laughs) Okay. What is the first thing that you would say? Or maybe the second thing, probably the first thing you would say is King Charles, why are you in my living room? (laughs) But after that, you would probably say something like, oh my gosh, I am stinky and sweaty and I'm in my gym clothes. Let me go and take a shower and then get properly dressed and then I'll come back and we can hang out. 
Well, the same thing goes for God. We've just talked about how we begin the Mass by placing ourselves in his presence. So the next logical step is to look at him and then look at us and be like, hmm, okay, I probably need to scrub up a bit. This is how St. Peter reacts when he first meets our Lord. He falls to his knees and says, leave me, Lord, I am a sinful man. So confessing our sin is actually a very natural reaction to being placed in the presence of God. Now, important point, the confiteor isn't an opportunity to just like wallow in our sin. We're not just kind of rolling around going, oh my gosh, I'm such a terrible person. No, if we look at the words of that prayer, we start by confessing our sinfulness And then we immediately ask Mary, the angels, the saints, and everyone in the church to pray for us. And then we go on to say, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. So step one, we acknowledge our sin. Step two, we ask for the help of others. And step three, we ask for the mercy of God. So the focus of this moment isn't actually on, you know, guilt and sin. The focus of this moment is on the mercy and healing of God. Now, because we know that God is merciful, because we know that he wants to give us good things, he has told us, seek and you shall find, we have confidence that if we ask for his mercy, he will give us his mercy. So that's why the next thing that we do is that we say or sing the Gloria. There's a theologian called Pius Pasch who called the Gloria the joyful response to the pleading of the Kyrie. So we've just asked for God's mercy and we know that he will give it to us. And so we respond with joy and we give glory to him. Now, the Gloria is such a beautiful prayer because it's basically just pure joy and thankfulness. It is a prayer where we glorify God for his goodness. We praise him and we adore him and we love him. We're not even asking him for anything. We're literally just acknowledging his perfection. I recently went to the symphony. That's my subtle culture flex. You're welcome. I went to the symphony and I heard Mozart's great mass in C minor. Oh my gosh, it's so beautiful. And his version of the Gloria is amazing. Like it literally goes for about 400 years. It's so long. It feels never ending. And it's so joyful and full of passion and love. And you almost get this sense that it's like, we could just keep praising God forever and ever. It's amazing. I don't know if you're aware of this guys, but Mozart was a genius. (laughs) You heard it here first. (laughs) So after the Gloria, the priest prays an opening prayer called the Collect. And this prayer kind of does what it says on the packet, right? It collects us. It draws us all together and gives us a kind of focus or theme of the Mass. So the Collect is a prayer that usually draws on the readings of the day or the saint of the day. And this can be a really useful one to listen out for, especially if we tend to get a little bit distracted in Mass, because it can give us something to kind of focus our prayer on for the rest of the Mass. So the collect concludes the opening part of the mass. Now for this whole opening bit, we've been standing, right? Because we've been praying, but now we sit down because we're moving into the liturgy of the word. So we sit and we listen to the readings from the Bible. So at a Sunday mass, there are two readings. So usually the first reading will come from the Old Testament and the second will come from the New Testament, one of the letters of the apostles or the Acts of the Apostles or the Book of Revelation. 
Now, the fact that we have readings from both the Old and the New Testaments is super helpful because it allows us to see the relationship between the Old and New Testaments. The fact that the New Testament lies hidden in the Old and the Old Testament is unveiled in the New. That's a quote from the Catechism Point 129. So the first and second readings are selected deliberately because there's some sort of relationship between them. They illuminate something about each other. Now, in many Protestant churches, the readings of the day are just selected by the minister or the pastor. However, in the Catholic Church, there's actually a set order of readings that all churches follow. Now, why is that the case? Because that can seem a little bit rigid, right, that you have to read certain readings at certain times. Well, it's a way of ensuring that everyone gets a kind of big picture view of the whole of the Bible. We get this overarching understanding of God's relationship with his people, and we don't get kind of stuck on one person's particular set of favorite bits from the Bible. Edward Shree refers to the Mass as the greatest Bible study on earth, because the structure of the cycle of readings invites us to such a thorough and deep and broad understanding of God's word. Now, between the first and second readings, we pray a psalm together. So the reader or the cantor will read or sing the psalm, and then the congregation repeats a response, which is usually a line from the psalm after each verse. And the theme of the psalm will be linked to the same theme as the readings. And it's a way of kind of prayerfully reflecting on that theme. So after the second reading, we have the gospel. So we've been sitting this whole time, but now we stand to welcome the gospel and we say or sing an alleluia to express our joy at the fact that we're about to hear the words of Jesus. Now, before the priest starts to read the gospel, he traces the sign of the cross over his forehead, his lips and his heart. And then we all do the same thing. I had a friend once who came to mass with me and she's not a Catholic. And she was like, why does everyone do like a, like a squiggle squiggle thing on their head before the gospel? And I was like, they're not squiggles. It's a sign of the cross. So the reason we do the sign of the cross is because we're asking God that his word might be always on our minds, our lips, and in our hearts. And then the priest reads from the gospel and we stand and listen. Now, the gospel is not just an account of Jesus' life from 2,000 years ago, right? It's not just a bunch of stories about Jesus. The words of the gospel are alive. The priest is sharing with us the living words of Christ that continue to speak to us today. So when we listen to the gospel, it shouldn't be a kind of passive, like in one ear and out the other experience where we're like, oh, I know this one, I can kind of tune out. No, we should be listening to those words of the gospel as though our Lord was standing right in front of us, looking us in the eye and saying those words just to us. We should be actively thinking about how do these words speak to me today now? Because they are just as much for me as they were for the first Christians. Now, if we find it difficult to kind of apply the words of Christ to our own lives, fear not, because we are about to reach the priest's homily. So at the conclusion of the gospel reading, we all sit down again, because we're going to listen to the priest's reflections on the reading of the day. And the aim of the homily is to help us to apply the words of Christ to our own lives. So it doesn't just become this kind of passive listening. It's actually an active thing where we're reflecting on how the gospel speak to us here and now. So after the homily, 
we stand again, so back to that praying posture, and we recite the creed. So the creed, which we covered in the first 16 episodes of this podcast, is a summary of what we believe as Christians. It summarizes salvation history, and it reminds us of our purpose as Christians, which is to reach heaven. It's really important that we say the creed at every Sunday Mass, because it is so easy to forget, to forget our purpose and what we actually believe and what our identity is. We're children of God, right? Especially in this world that we're in, that just seems to be completely intent on distracting us from our goal. Standing up every Sunday and reciting the creed is a way of reaffirming our baptismal promises and being like, yes, this is who I am. This is what I believe. Interesting point In the past, in the old translation of the Mass, we used to say, we believe in the creed, we believe in God, etc. And I love the fact that now in the new translation, we say, I believe. I love it because there is no hiding in that. There's no hiding behind the we, we collectively believe. We actually have to stand up and say out loud in front of everyone, I personally believe in these things. So after the creed, We remain standing and we say the prayers of the faithful. So in the prayers of the faithful, we offer prayers for various intentions, for our own communities and parishes, for people in other parts of the world. And the specific prayers will vary depending on the needs that are around us. And these prayers are read by a member of the congregation and we all respond to each prayer with something along the lines of, Lord, hear our prayer. Now, this is a moment in the Mass where the whole congregation exercises their priestly function. So this is something we talked about in episode 24 on holy orders. As baptized Christians, every single one of us has a priestly calling. Now, that doesn't mean that we're all called to be ordained. It just means that every single one of us is called to offer prayer worship and sacrifice to our Lord. So this is a moment where we play a particularly active role in the mass by offering intercessory prayers to God on behalf of others. So it's really important that we try to stay switched on in the prayers of the faithful and to really actively in our hearts pray for those intentions that are being read out. After the prayers of the faithful, we sit down again And now we begin the second part of the Mass, the Liturgy of the Eucharist. So we've just had the Liturgy of the Word in the readings and the prayers of the faithful. So God has fed us through his Word. And now we are about to be fed by the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. So these are like the two key ways that God nourishes his people, right? Through the Bible, through his Word and through the Eucharist, and they are both present in the Mass. So, the liturgy of the Eucharist, it begins with something called the offertory. So the offertory is like a moment of preparation as the bread and wine are being prepared to be consecrated. So during the offertory, members of the congregation bring the bread and wine up to the altar, And the priest then presents those offerings to God and asks that God might accept these gifts. Now, during that time, there is often also a collection where a collection plate is passed around and you can put money in it. And then that's also brought up to the altar. Now, why is this moment important? 
Why is it included in the mass? Because it might seem a little bit weird that like halfway through the mass, we suddenly start collecting money from the congregation. Like, isn't that something that should happen maybe like after mass or on the way out? Like, why is it part of the mass itself? Well, since the very beginning, Christians have had this practice of bringing gifts to the altar during the offertory. So it used to be things like, you know, flowers and fruit and oil and wool. It was like the fruits of their labor. And the reason why Christians did this is because Christ's sacrifice on the cross is about to be made present on the altar, right? And and represented to God the Father. Now, as members of the mystical body of Christ, as members of the church, we want to unite our whole selves to that sacrifice, right? So by bringing the fruits of our labor up to the altar, we're symbolically offering ourselves in union with Christ. Now, today, the fruits of our labor aren't usually flowers and oil and wool. The fruits of our labor is money. So we make some small financial sacrifice during the offertory as an offering, right? As a symbol of our union with Christ on the cross. And then that money contributes to the needs of the parish and the priests and the poor. The other thing that we can do during the offertory while we're witnessing the priest preparing these gifts is we can internally bring our own prayers and intentions and lay them at the foot of the altar. We can use this time to offer the mass in our hearts for some special intention and unite both ourselves and all of the people that we love to Christ on the cross. So once the bread and the wine are brought up to the altar, the priest prays over them and asks God that they might be made acceptable to him. He then washes his hands, which is a symbol of purification, and he prays the words of Psalm 51, wash me, O Lord, from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He then invites the whole congregation to stand and pray. So we echo the priest's prayer. We say, may the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands. So at this point, we are all approaching God with humility, right? Something incredible is about to take place and we're not presuming anything. We are offering our whole selves in union with Christ and we're asking God with humility that our offering might be made acceptable to him. The priest then says a prayer over the offerings and then we move into something called the preface, What's the preface? Well, we can think about the preface of a book, right? It's that part that prepares us for what is about to come. So in the preface, Christ himself is about to be made truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity on the altar. But first, there are a few things that we need to do so that we're adequately prepared for that moment. First, the priest says, the Lord be with you and we respond and with your spirit. So because we are about to enter that most sacred moment, we call on God to be with us and to be with the priest. The priest then says, lift up your hearts. And we respond, we lift them up to the Lord. So again, as we're entering into that sacred moment, we set our hearts on God, right? We put aside all of the distractions that we brought in with us, all of the things that we're worried about or stressed about. We've given them to God in the offertory, and now we just fully set our hearts on him, fully focus on what's about to happen. 
And then the priest says, let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And we respond, it is right and just. So we express our thanks to God for the literal miracle that is about to occur. I love this, that we, are, we thank God even before the consecration has happened. It's such an expression of our faith and our trust in him that we know what he is about to do for us. It's also an expression of humility, right? We're acknowledging the incredible gift that we're about to receive and we're saying a sincere and deep thank you. And then after the priest says a prayer of thanks, we all pray the prayer, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. This prayer is taken straight out of the scriptures. It's also taken straight out of heaven because the first half of it is a quote from Isaiah, the angels singing, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. So in this moment, we literally join in with a choir of angels praising and glorifying God. And then at the conclusion of that prayer, we kneel down for the first time in the whole mass, right? This is the first time that we've knelt down. Remember in our last episode, we talked about how that kneeling is a sign that we are in awe, that something incredible is happening. So let's just stop and think about what's happened so far in the whole mass. It's kind of like the whole time we've slowly been cranking an engine, preparing ourselves for what's going to happen. We begin by saying sorry for our sins. We open ourselves to the word of God. We offer ourselves to him. We thank him with increasing emphasis for his goodness. And we finally end with this explosion of joyful heavenly prayer, praising God's holiness before falling to our knees in adoration before the altar. So the whole mass is centered on the Eucharist, right? And every single thing that has happened so far in the mass has been preparing us and pointing us towards that central point. It's so beautiful. So, Once we have knelt down, we begin something called the Eucharistic prayer. Now, there are a few different Eucharistic prayers that the priest can choose from, but they all follow the same fundamental structure. Now, this is the crucial moment. This is the moment of the greatest importance in the whole Mass. The priest invokes the Holy Spirit, right? He prays that the Holy Spirit might turn the bread and wine into the body and blood of our Lord. He then says the words of the consecration. He uses the words of Christ in the gospel. Take this, all of you, and eat of it. This is my body. Take this, all of you, and drink from it. This is my blood. And in that moment, the bread and wine truly become the body and blood of our Lord Jesus. He is truly present body, blood, soul, and divinity on the altar in front of us. And this is the moment of greatest reverence and significance in the whole mass. Now, if you want to think a little bit more about the Eucharist, that that transubstantiation, how this actually occurs, you can go back to episodes 20 and 21, where we talked about this sacrament at length. I would also encourage you to read the book, The Fourth Cup by Scott Hahn. So, After the consecration, the priest genuflects in reverence and adoration before the Eucharist, and then he stands and says, the mystery of faith. So with these words, the priest acknowledges that the great mystery of our faith, the Eucharist, is now present before us.
And in response, we, the congregation, say one of three acclamations. So you can read these acclamations in an order of mass, but just as an example, one of them is, save us, savior of the world, for by your cross and resurrection, you have set us free. So each of these acclamations, they're all worded a little bit differently, but they're essentially a summary of the core mystery, the core truth of our faith, that we have been saved by the death and resurrection of Christ, whose sacrifice is now truly present to us on the altar. At this moment, as we say that acclamation, we are standing at the foot of the cross, contemplating the mystery of our faith in real time. So from this moment onwards, we're in a state of adoration and worship. So we remain kneeling while the priest continues the Eucharistic prayer. So in the Eucharistic prayer, the priest unites the whole church to Christ's sacrifice. He prays, first of all, for the living members of the church on earth He prays for all of those who have died and who are in purgatory. And lastly, he prays in communion with all of the saints in heaven. So in other words, the priest unites the entire church, the mystical body of Christ in heaven and on earth, to the physical body of Christ in the Eucharist, and then presents that one united supreme sacrifice to God. The Eucharistic prayer then ends with one of my favorite words, a doxology, which is a prayer of praise. The priest holds up the body and blood of our Lord and says, through him, with him and in him, O God, almighty father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours forever and ever. And we all respond, amen. So this is a prayer of joyful praise to the Trinity for this incredible gift. Now, when we say amen in this moment, this is actually sometimes referred to as the great amen. And the reason for that is because this is the most important amen that we say in the whole mass. Why? Because in this moment, we're not just affirming the doxology, that prayer of praise that the priest has just made. We're also affirming everything that the priest has said in the whole Eucharistic prayer, including the consecration. So that amen is charged with meaning. It's a really big thing for us to say. We're affirming everything, this huge miracle that has just happened. We're uniting ourselves to it and saying, so be it to God. So in our hearts, that great amen should be like a ringing, reverberating affirmation, right? It's a huge deal. That's why we sometimes sing the great amen. We're now at the point in the Mass where we prepare to actually receive our Lord in the Eucharist, and this is called the communion rite. So we start by standing because we're going to pray the Our Father. Now, the Our Father is literally like the perfect prayer because it's the one prayer that Jesus himself taught us. So if we're going to say any prayer to prepare ourselves to receive him in the Eucharist, it makes sense that at this point we would say the prayer that he taught us. So we say the Our Father. And next, the priest invites us to offer each other a sign of peace. So the sign of peace sort of depends on where you are. It might be a handshake or a nod or a bow. But basically, the reason why we offer this sign of peace to each other in this moment is because we are about to receive communion 
and become more fully incorporated into the one body of Christ. We're becoming more closely united with Christ. And we can't all be one body if we're not united to each other. You might remember in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, our Lord says, when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go, first be reconciled. So this is actually a really important moment where we express our charity and our unity with each other by offering God's peace to each other. Sometimes we can kind of slip into like trivializing that that moment a little bit and treating it almost like it's an opportunity to have a bit of a social breather before communion, right? We sort of turn and check out who else is in the congregation, say hi to my friends and see if the guy in front of me is actually cute or if it's just the back of his head that's cute. Okay, if we treat the sign of peace like that, it can actually be quite a distracting moment. Ideally, this shouldn't be a distracting moment. It should be a moment of preparation before we receive our Lord. After the sign of peace, the priest breaks the consecrated host in a gesture that echoes our Lord breaking bread during the Last Supper, and it symbolizes the whole church becoming one body in Christ. He then takes a small portion of the host and places it in the chalice. And again, this is a symbol of unity, the unity of the whole church and also the unity of Christ's own body and blood in the work of salvation. So basically everything that's happening right now symbolizes the union that we are about to have with God and with each other. And while this is happening, while the priest is breaking bread, the congregation says the Agnus Dei or Lamb of God. So Lamb of God is a term that is given to Jesus multiple times in the New Testament. And it's a reference to the Passover lamb, which was sacrificed in the Old Testament. Jesus is the new Passover lamb. And this is the moment where we recognize that. And then after the Agnus Day, we kneel down again, because these are the precious final moments before we receive our Lord. And something really significant is about to happen. So the priest holds up the body and blood of our Lord and says, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those called to the supper of the Lamb. Now, interestingly, this echoes not just John the Baptist's proclamation, Behold the Lamb of God. It also echoes the book of Revelation, where John writes, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now that's really significant. We are referencing a part of the Bible that refers to a wedding supper because that's what the Mass actually is. Plot twist, major reveal, we are at a wedding supper. Whose wedding? Ours. Okay, maybe that sounds weird, but let's think about it. What happens at a wedding in a marriage? Two people become totally united. They become one body. Remember how we said that in the Eucharist, the mystical body of Christ, i.e. the church, is united with the physical body of Jesus in the Eucharist. 
We have already spiritually united ourselves to Christ's sacrifice on the cross and the offertory, and now we are about to literally, physically receive Jesus himself in the Eucharist to become totally united with him. And that's why we've been focusing so much on unity in these moments. That's what the whole Mass has been preparing us for. We are the ones called to the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's insane. And so, of course, our response to that incredible invitation of total unity with our Lord is to say the words, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. So this is a quotation from the centurion in the Gospels. And it's so natural that we would say those words at this moment. We have just been invited to total union with Christ. And our first thought is, I'm not good enough because we're not. But... The beautiful thing about that prayer is that it doesn't end there. It's not false humility. We're not saying, no, I'm not good enough. I refuse your gift. Bye. Okay. We go on to say, only say the word and my soul shall be healed. In other words, Lord, I'm not good enough. Make me good enough. Heal my soul. Make me more worthy to receive you. It is such a humble, trusting response. And then after we've said those words, we process up to receive communion. Now, this is something that we've mentioned before, but if you're not a practicing Catholic, you won't be able to receive communion. However, at this point, if you would like to, you can still process up with everyone else and just cross your hands over your chest. So each hand to the opposite shoulder, and then the priest will give you a blessing. Now, after communion, there's some time to sit or kneel and pray. And often there's a hymn at this point. This is a really important moment of thanksgiving. Because we have just received God himself in the Eucharist. He is dwelling within us. So this is a time to basically just rest with him, to just sit with him and to give thanks for this incredible gift. And then the last thing that happens in the Mass is that the priest says a final prayer and then we have the dismissal, which is where the priest declares that the mass has ended and sends us forth into the world. And we respond, thanks be to God. Now, this is a really important moment because it's easy to think of this dismissal as the priest basically saying, all right, guys, that's it for today. Off you go. And we all go, OK, great. Thanks be to God. And then rush out for morning tea. No, that is absolutely not what is happening in this moment. When the priest tells us to go forth or he might say go and announce the gospel or go in peace. When he says that, he's giving us a mission. He's not just telling us that it's time to go home. He's saying, okay, you have just received God himself in communion. You have become more fully incorporated into the body of Christ. Now it is your job to go and be Christ to others in the world. And our response, thanks be to God, is a joyful acceptance of that mission. Okay, so... That's the mass. (laughs) One final thing that I want to say before we wrap up is that you might be hearing all of this and thinking, wow, you know, the mass is such an incredible, powerful, wonderful thing, which it is. But then maybe you go to mass and it might feel like a bit of an anticlimax. Like maybe you, you get there and you're kind of distracted and someone's kid has brought a really loud toy and the mass might not be celebrated as reverently as it could be, or maybe the choir leaves something to be desired. (laughs) Okay. We shouldn't freak out or get upset if that happens. I mean, obviously the mass should be celebrated reverently and the hymns should draw us into worship rather than distracting us from it. And we want to try to be as focused and present as possible. However, 
We're human beings and things aren't always perfect. The main thing to remember is that the mass is the mass. Christ is there on the altar. No matter how off-key the choir is, no matter how indifferent or distracted I might feel, Christ is there, and that is the main thing. And if we want to get more out of the Mass, first of all, we can and should pray for our parish priest and pray for the other members of our parish. But also, we can turn to Our Lady. Like, think about it. Our Lady was more united to Jesus than anyone. She literally carried him in her womb, okay? So we can go to her and ask her to help us get the most out of the Mass. We can ask her to help us be focused and be reverent and to truly see Christ present there on the altar, no matter what else is going on around us. Okay, that's all we have time for today. In our next episode, we're going to talk about one of my absolute favorite. Well, he's not actually a saint. I was about to say saint. He's not a saint yet. He's been beatified. His name is Franz Jagerstatter, and he rode a motorbike, and he was like obsessed with his wife, and was also a martyr, and he was basically the best, and I think he's amazing. So I can't wait for that one. Have a fantastic fortnight. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for listening to Crash Course Catholicism. If you are enjoying this podcast and you'd like to support it, you can do so by subscribing and leaving a review. You can also become a patron on Patreon. But most importantly, please pray for me and for everyone listening to this podcast. Have a fantastic day. Bye.